Good morning, everyone, and um, welcome. I'm Barry Pavel. I'm uh, Atlanta Council Vice President and Director of the Brent Scowcroft Center here. Um, welcome to the Atlanta Council for a, a quite a distinctive uh, discussion and event, I, I think you'll agree, um, here in Washington in 2015. In recent times, scholars and policymakers and others have been questioning the future of global governance and the nature of great power dynamics in the era that we find ourselves in. Certainly there are, there are powerful global trends reshaping uh, our, our demographics, advanced technologies um, having their own effects, uh, building and in some cases diminishing individual empowerment, and uh, a number of trends in the food, water, energy nexus area that are also influencing relations among uh, nation states. At the Scowcroft Center, as many of you may know, we're making concerted efforts uh, through each of our initiatives, but in particular, we have um, uh, Matt Burroughs, who is the director of the Strategic Foresight Initiative, and Dan Chu, who is the director of our strategy work, um, looking to understand how to implement policy in a way that's informed by longer-term strategic thinking, and, and certainly General Scowcroft himself has been emphasizing that the importance of that to us as well. And so in that spirit, um, about two years, uh, over the last two years, the Scowcroft Center has partnered with, with the Moscow-based Primakov Institute for World Economy and International Relations. Um, and we're very um, pleased to have the director here, uh, Dr. Dinkin, um, of that institute, to jointly produce a report on global trends out to 2035. We're publishing the executive summary today. Uh, hopefully many of you have that. The much longer and fuller report will be available next month. Um, we're also having it translated into Russian, and we'll have a, a, a similar event in Moscow once that, is, once that is ready. While both institutions conceived the idea for the joint work before the Ukraine crisis, the current spike in U.S.-Russian tensions has added urgency to find ways to find common ground in areas where we might seek to do so, even as both countries attend to their own uh, strong perceptions of their national interests in a number of areas. Interestingly, during this work, both sides had, had very few analytic differences on this effort, even as the rift in uh, relations between our governments has grown. We believe that there is an urgent need to put into place processes whereby current differences can be discussed and ideally resolved, again, with due attention to national interests. Both teams here strongly believe that the shared analysis of the forces that are, er that are eroding the foundations of the international system, um, we don't even know what to call it, uh, some people still are calling it post-Cold War, um, those forces that are analyzed in the joint report could help guide the development of, of a different order, of an inclusive order and an effective international order that could help reduce the risks of conflict while providing a framework for global cooperation. This report, uh, and it is uh, dire reading, but I think very important and very rich, it warns of the risks of escalating conflict, it paints a worst case scenario of a new bipolar world in which there's an alignment of China and Russia together on one side and the United States and its allies on the other. This would not be a new Cold War, but it would be a very daunting and dangerous world. With the release of this report, we want to move the conversation forward on finding common ground 
and constructing truly forward-thinking policies with the idea that as you look at the longer-range trends, uh, it helps to give perspective and to develop strategies and policies that can, that can more effectively address the, the nearer-term concerns as well. But uh, I now want to especially thank Alexander Dinkin, the director of the Primakov Institute, and Fyodor Wojtolowski, the deputy director for international politics, for coming all this way to discuss this joint report for the first time here in Washington. As I mentioned, Matt Burroughs, the director of our Strategic Foresight Initiative, uh, led the effort on our side. Uh, Matt has decades of experience in analyzing uh, long-range trends. Uh, and also Bob, Ma Bob Manning, a, a senior fellow in the Scowcroft Center, was a core uh, participant as well throughout, um, throughout this, this work. We've had the good fortune of generous support from the Carnegie Corporation of New York, from Michael Calvi, senior partner of Baring Bostock Capital Partners and an Atlanta Council board member, and Ms. Patricia Cloherty, the chairman and CEO of Delta Private Equity Partners. Finally, I'd like to express my appreciation for Ed Luce, the chief U.S. columnist of the Financial Times, uh, for moderating this discussion on the joint report. Ed has been a faithful follower of our strategic foresight efforts and vice versa. Um, we will be tweeting this. This is a public event. It's on the record. And so um, we encourage people to tweet. The hashtag is AC Strategy, and we'll be tweeting from the accounts um, at AC Scowcroft and at AC Foresight. And so without further ado, I want to turn it over to Ed Luce. Thanks a lot, Barry. Um, and is this working? Yes. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here um, once again. Um, as Barry said, this is a, a cheerful topic, global system on the brink, pathways to a new normal. Um, and um, uh, we've really got an extremely impressive US-Russian panel here of, of uh, the world's top futurologists, if, you, if you'll permit me to use that description of you. Um, before I probe your pessimism, because I do think pessimistic is the, a fair characterization of your report. Um, let me just turn it over to Matt to make a few opening remarks, and then Alexander um, will respond, and then we'll get stuck into a discussion. Well, well thanks, uh, Ed, and again, thanks for, for moderating the panel. I wanted to begin, um, talk a little bit about, I, I think, some of the issues that we have in the report that are not likely to be the headline ones. I mean, obviously, you know, we're going to talk a lot about the geopolitic shifts, um, this idea of bipolar world, and we can certainly get deep into it. But a lot of our thinking has been very much influenced by what is happening, I would say, at a lower level, the more domestic level. Um, and the work actually begins by looking at globalization and where we are in terms of globalization. So a couple of the issues that, for me, are just as concerning as the more geopolitical tensions that we, we particularly know about in, uh, in a place like this and, in, and certainly in, in Washington. And we talk about, in the report, the increasing gaps between the core and the periphery. Um, something that is really exacerbated by the technological revolution, at, this, at least at this point of the technological revolution. We also talk about um, the breakdown of globalization really into regionalization based upon trade patterns, based upon a much more polycentric uh, financial architecture that we see developing in the last couple days. We've 
seeing the RMB become part of the IMF basket. Um, that isn't necessarily bad, but if it furthers the fragmentation that we're seeing at the geopolitical level, um, then I think it is you know, reinforcing the bad tendencies of, of these tensions and breakdowns at the, at the higher level. Um, the real worries about some of the regions, um, you know, Africa, here you have great potential, um, but you're also seeing, you know, the, in terms of agriculture, the productivity actually slide. So here they have the biggest uh, area of variable land, but they're not um, producing. They also have the greatest potential demographically. They're going to be by 2040, 2050, um, really the, the place that provides the, the working age population in the world. Um, but it needs to get a lot of the governance needs to get fixed if they're going to realize that potential. Latin America, we're looking at potentially a third of the middle class, which has recently become middle class, potentially slide back um, into kind of the upper reaches of, of poverty. And obviously Middle East, um, where you see violence feeding on violence. And we have a, a scenario there of, of really of an expanding conflict. And of course, with conflict, you're not going to see the economic development um, potential. So these are issues that um, I think are, are really the, the driving forces um, of this more pessimistic outlook. Obviously, we have some throughout, we talk about opportunities. And there, really, it's you know, up to us, I think. And this is the, you know, really the audience we're trying to reach is really the elites, the, the, the governing institutions throughout the world to understand exactly what is happening at this uh, lower level and to really seize the moment. We do have a number of opportunities. And again, those are, are listed there to make sure that, that we can go into a much more positive path. So my you know, final remark is you know, the pessimism, I think, is well-grounded, but you don't necessarily have to have uh, this pessimistic future, that we do have ways of shaping it in another direction. Thanks, Matt. Alexander. Thank you. Uh, as already was said, we started this project uh, before February 2014. And even in those times, the level of trust towards Washington in Moscow, I can say, was not very high. But after Ukrainian crisis, it's sliding maybe even below zero. So when, when I'm looking back, say, to the year 2001, when two powers operated after 9-11 in say, quasi-alliance basis in toppling Taliban regime in Kabul, it seems from today like a miracle, like a fantasy. Uh, but we are here not, not to look uh, back. We are here about the future. And I would say that we are already living in a rather dangerous world. Uh, the bipolar system crystal clear, simplistic. Uh, in this world, there were enough just one Berlin Wall. 
Today, there are 64 walls of fences are erecting around the, along the board lines between the states. And for me, this is a metaphor of the current chaotic uh, global order. So what were the reasons uh, when we decided to launch this um, uh, project together with Atlantic Council? Uh, firstly, um, I'm speaking on my own, uh, we are concerned citizens and we are deeply dissatisfied with the current state of Russia-US relations. Uh, and in my perception, both countries has very asymmetric picture of the global realities. So, key idea was to try to bridge this gap in those perceptions. I may tell you that uh, before existed certain set of strategic values, which was elaborated during the decades of a strategic lim limitation agreement. Today, this culture no more existed. I guess the same true about security culture. Today, 45 states are considering new uh, nuclear programs. Our outlook suggests that by 2035, there would be already 15 members of the nuclear club comparing with current nine members. So many of these countries, of course, they have no adequate security regime. More than that, states are no more possess the monopoly on technologies and know-how. And nuclear weapon, especially the dirty one, or bioweapon, is no more a high-tech. Garage production of it is not a fiction. And of course, ISIS is clearly hunger for weapons of mass destruction. And today they control Mosul University laboratories and, of course, such technologies as drone, 3D printing adds some dark colors to this even murky reality. So I do believe that in this environment we are facing today the dangerous race between cooperation and catastrophe. Second reason, that we believe that in the time when official channels are completely mm, blocked, this is the exact time for a second track job. So I guess that we could not permit ourselves the luxury of total confrontation as it was in the time of the Cold War. And thirdly, of course, I appreciate the professional state of art of the several global trends reports which were produced under Matt Barrow's leadership. At MMO, we also possess decades-long uh, experience of producing long-term outlooks, so we decided to merge uh, our efforts. So I guess that we try to produce best, uh, to our knowledge, consistent, integrated picture of the possible pathways out of the brink towards new normality in the coming uh, 20 years. Of course, we address this report to the expert community, to the general public, and of course, to the leaders of our countries. Thank you. Um, I, I, I had a very absorbing time reading this report, and um, whilst it was pessimistic and dire, as Barry called it, I felt it was also bracingly realistic. So let me just um, bring in Theodore and Robert. Um, on that same broad question, you, you present three scenarios for the next 20 years 
of globalization. The first is a new post-Cold War, post-post-Cold War emerging bipolarity with, on the one hand, Russia and China um, and the Shanghai Cooperation uh, Organization in, in sort of one de facto anti-democratic block, anti-Western block. Um, and emerging tensions, the breakdown of global cooperation, and the potential, uh, very real and rising potential for conflict. Um, the, your second scenario is a sort of devolution into regional blocks with the West, the East, maybe Eurasia, um, Middle East remaining a mess. But again, it's a deglobalization, or, or at least a reduced cooperation scenario. And your third is the continued growth of inclusive globalization, of inclusive liberal world order. And you make very, very clear in the report that scenario three is by far the least likely. Um, so you're left with scenario one, which, you know, at its worst end is sort of borderline apocalyptic, um, at its worst end. Um, and, and scenario two, which is not, you know, a, a happy, clappy future of cooperation. It's one where we all retreat into our regional silos and the common issues that we face, climate change obviously being one very much on our mind, but weapons of mass destruction, ISIS, um, so, uh, the breakdown of the global internet, the balkanization of communication and so forth, where we, we're not really in a position to, uh, to, to cooperate in tackling these problems. Tell me, each of you, starting with Fyodor uh, and then moving on to Robert, um, do you fully share this pessimistic um, uh, prognosis? From a Russian perspective, I, I, I know it's in your culture, pessimism, but it, it's clearly spreading, it's spreading to America. Don't judge. Uh, with Dostoevsky, we, we have a lot of optimism in our culture. But anyway, uh, uh, anyway you thank also you, have thank good you for this question because... Uh, one of the critical issues for our report and uh, for our discussions during preparing it was the role of major powers and the, and the uh, uh, scenarios of development of relations between them. Uh, because uh, we are uh, absolutely believe and we have uh, some proofs uh, in economic data that uh, the liberal myth about uh, the group of interdependence as a stabilizing factor of world economy and international politics is not working as, uh, uh, as well as it is, was supposed in the uh, 1990s. Because together with interdependence, uh, the competition between major powers on uh, interstate level and on transnational level, on the level of transnational enterprise, is growing. And these two trends are not, uh, you know, they are uh, not uh, confronting each other. They're going together. And uh, it's a dialectical, uh, uh, you know, way of development of uh, international politics. In the polycentric world order, the role not only of major powers, but of different centers of international system is growing. At the same time, this international system, and we wrote it in our report, is uh, developing as a hierarchical system. And uh, there, uh, different players, uh, major powers and other players, uh, non-state actors, are uh, uh, taking some place in this hierarchy. Uh, in this hierarchy. And uh, it doesn't mean that uh, this place is forever. It's flexible. 
And it depends on many factors, financial, technological, economic, political. But uh, the principal question is to which extent uh, major powers and uh, other actors interconnected to them will ready to build inclusive uh, political uh, international institutions, economic uh, integration structures uh, in, uh, two key region, uh, in two key regions, in Euro-Atlantic and uh, in Asia-Pacific. Uh, uh, Robert, do you, do you share that perspective? Uh, yeah, I wouldn't argue strongly with it. I mean, I, what, what I think, one thing we haven't talked about is uh, domestic forces, because there, there seems to be also a, a global trend towards nativism, nationalism, uh, ethno-nationalism, um, that I think is driving a lot of the things we, we're describing at the macro level. Yeah, I, I want to get into that a little bit later. Um, uh, but I, I mean, MMO, your, your, your organization is the premier think tank in, 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 in Russia. Um, you, you know, you advise um, President Putin, your Russian Academy of Sciences founded, you're, you're really the sort of up there as part of the Russian intellectual establishment. Um, so your, your perspective is, I think, is particularly interesting. Um, uh, from a non-Russian point of view, you could look at the future of the world and think, well, look, if Russia wasn't electing or organizing the elections of people like Putin, maybe the optimistic scenario in this report, the number three, would be far likelier. Um, that you know, if you're talking about rogue actors, a lot of the world, um, and particularly in my part of the world, Europe, would look at Russia as being a rogue, rogue act, actor. Now, sorry, I'm being provocateur here. I'm, um, um, you're nice people. Please don't take this personally. But um, Alexander, what, 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 what would you say to that? Is the rest of the world wrong to see Russia as a rogue actor and Putin as its uh, unstable leader? Look, a uh, couple of sentences regarding your previous question. You mm -hmm. mentioned the three scenarios. Yeah. And this is possible options. Mm -hmm. But in my perception, there would be no firewall in between of each of them. Mm -hmm. So in reality, it would be combination of these three possible paths. Regarding your second issue, uh, you know, it's in my perception very short-term uh, um, approach to our realities. Uh, without, let's say, history of the uh, development of the so-called new Russia recently. The turning point, in my perception, was 1996 elections. Mm -hmm. Remember, non-popular Yeltsin yes. and very popular Zyganov. And here we came to the issue of the quality of the opposition. In case of Poland, Kwasniewski also pursued by some forces as a very red, but he goes in lines with the Polish constitution. We were not quite sure about Zyuganov, because if you read his program, it would be total nationalization, cancellation of the convertibility of ruble, monopoly on the foreign trade, state planning committee, and so on and so forth. So this is maybe the bad fate of Russia, that we have the opposition of this quality. Okay, can I add two yeah, words? please. Uh, I can say uh, one more thing, but because, uh, of course, um, Western media succeeded in demonization of Mr. Putin and personification of Russian foreign policy during the Ukrainian crisis, and before that even. 
But uh, if we will look attentively to different steps of Russian government uh, from 2001, uh, Russian political elite and Russian government was looking to be more engaged with the West and uh, suggested many times, uh, you know, sort of opportunities, sort of ideas. For example, President Medvedev suggested a treaty on European security. Uh, which was completely declined by the West. And Russia was asking uh, NATO, for example, for many times for cooperation with organization of cooperative uh, security treaty on Afghanistan and Central Asia issues. Nobody responded. So uh, I'm uh, uh, not trying to advocate my government. Uh, of course, uh, or, or we have advantages and dis disadvantages of the path we're developing now. but. I want to uh, uh, insist on uh, the idea that, uh, that both sides were absolutely inadequate and were not ready to build inclusive uh, international security architecture. And even in sphere of arms control, it's a miracle that during period of reset, we reached uh, Praha Treaty. And uh, uh, how uh, we will be, uh, both sides, I mean, will be ready to develop this architecture, especially in Euro-Atlantic, where now we see uh, you know, the highest level of tensions, uh, will be uh, the answer to your question. No, I appreciate there is strategic misunderstanding here and that there's um, misperceptions on both sides. So let's get into US strategic myopia if you will. Um, uh, and, and let's talk about your report's uh, supposition that um, the US is no longer the, the dominant superpower. It will be primus inter pares. It will be first amongst equals. And there's a vast difference between these two um, levels of power, um, particularly when it comes to building global institutions or reforming existing global institutions to take account of the rapidly changing world. And we can think of examples like um, the World Trade Organization, the Bretton Woods, um, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, and so forth. Um, so the US is declining. Are we clear on that? Is that your, is that your, is that your view, Matt? Your relative decline. I mean, we've said that for, for some time. You have. And, and it isn't, you know, we're not in this unipolar moment. Um, I'm not sure that that actually existed. We, we certainly believed it existed at one point, but not, I don't think, um, you know, you're right. You can't, U.S. has enormous amount of power, um, but probably only if it understands the circumstances, the strategic environment in which we're overplaying its hand, trying to be the unipolar power. So I guess this would this, be a this, huge strategic blunder. Uh, this gets the, right. This gets into what Robert briefly mentioned, um, which is uh, not so much the hard assets of the U.S., but the soft ass assets. What you're doing with the still immense power you have, or what you're not doing, and indeed what Fedor mentioned in terms of misunderstanding between um, Russia and the West. Um, so in an era where the US needs to be making adjustments, it needs to be understanding the changing gravity, economic gravity of the world, and incorporating rising China's and India's into the global institutions, um, we have Donald Trump leading the um, Republican field. We have many, <coughs> many Donald Trumps following him. 
Um, we have Jeb Bush sort of completely abandoning the, the, the sane middle ground and, and now basically cutting his cloth more and more to Donald Trump. Um, how does this look from Russia, um, Alexander? What, what's, what, what does, what's the perception of America's politics from Moscow? Uh, well, of course, those people you mentioned, they do not add some bright colors to our perception of American political system. Some people believe that we are watching sort of a political circus. But we are very much attuned to this circus because we have Mr. Zirinovsky in Russia. So some people can make comparison parallels between. Yeah, but he, he, he stands no chance of winning any elections. Putin's going to keep winning, right? So it's not apples with apples here. This is very Russian perceptions. We do believe that this gentleman who is a great investor also have no chances to become a president of the United States. OK, so finally some optimism. We've, we, we have a. Good. Well, I'll take that prediction to, to the bank. Robert, um, talk to me a little bit about how you make strategic foreign policy in this kind of political climate. Well, I think that's a big part of the problem. That I, I, I don't think we can say that for the past decade the U.S. is pursuing what I would call an enlightened self-interest. That uh, the Americans have had a very difficult time adjusting to the diffusion of power in the world. And we still are in our, there's still a psychology that it's still 1956, and you, you see it in the presidential debates, uh, and, and you see it in Congress. Uh, my argument, and a lot of the things that are happening are happening because of default on our part. For example, um, I think Congress bears a lot of the responsibility for the creation of the Asian Infrastructure Bank that the Chinese have launched. Mm. It has failed to ratify the uh, UN reform in 2010 at the G20, which would have given China more shares. We have not reformed the Asian Development Bank, which is run by the Japanese, with the Chinese playing a very small role. And I think if those things had happened, we probably wouldn't have an Asian infrastructure bank. So I don't think there's an alternative, and nobody's got a better idea than the Bretton Woods institutions, but the failure to, in a timely manner, modernize them to reflect the new power realities is creating what we're starting to see as competing visions of world order. Uh, we see it from Russia, this Eurasian vision of Mr. Putin. We see it from Xi Jinping. He's creating a whole set, has ideas for a whole set of parallel institutions. You mentioned the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and others uh, across the board. And so that's the problem. I think, I think how do, you, how do you lead as a first among equals? How do you enfranchise, give, create a sense of enfra enfranchisement for emerging economies and emerging powers? Um, I, I think one of the sort of key planks of your negative scenario is greater and greater cooperation between um, Russia and China and, and countries around it. And the one road, one belt China policy is linking up countries in between, as you say in the report. China is making a virtue of having 14 countries on its border, um, which would ordinarily be a vulnerability. It's turning into a virtue with these big infrastructure investments. You've got this massive, potentially massive at any rate, gas supply deal um, between Russia and China that, that uh, President Putin signed last year with Xi Jinping. Um, I guess the question is, and this is something Matt has said before, that there's a lot of expectation around the Russia-China relationship. 
Um, there's, there's a lot of smoke. But how much fire is there? How real is this? You're very, very different countries. And I, I, I mean, actually, first of all, like to ask that, pose that to Matt, and then get into uh, Fyodor and Alexander's <coughs> How real is Russia, China? The, how real is, a, uh, is Russia's pivot to Asia? Uh, Fyodor, sure. Uh, okay. uh, thanks. Uh, Russia's pivot Matt. to Asia started even before uh, the Ukrainian crisis, yeah. and it's, it started from APEC summit in Vladivostok. And uh, you know a strategic trend in uh, Russian development. One of the key results uh, of uh, uh, Russia's economy development uh, of 1990s and 2000s was uh, development of interdependence with EU. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but uh, Russia was looking and is still looking for diversification of its uh, economy and of its economic ties. In this sense, China is absolutely complementary partner. And uh, One Belt, One Road program uh, uh, possibly could give, and other projects so that uh, China could give background for uh, such new interdependence in economic sphere between China and Russia. But it doesn't mean a military bloc. Okay, like I get that. that. But, um, but, but Matt, I mean, the, the complementarity of, of resources and trade. But Matt, is, this, is there something bigger here going on? Is there, a, a, um, if not an ideological, a strategic common, commonality emerging between Russia and China? I, I think the there is. I mean, it depends on what the potential is over the longer run. And I think, you know, part of it is that we don't recognize it in Washington. I mean, that we, um, as Fedor was saying, I mean, we're, we're, we don't have much sense of history on this. I mean, it, it seems to us a reaction to the sanctions that were put in place on Ukraine. So Putin goes to to Beijing and signs uh, deals, and then that's when we seem to date this this um, actual coming together. I mean, it's not certainly an alliance, but I would say uh, over time it could grow into something um, that is, um, you know, of real geopolitical significance. And I think there's a problem. You know, I remember debating this in this town, the BRICS when we were doing the first Global Trends 2020. And um, huge, you know, everybody said, this is just a construct of Goldman Sachs. Nothing there. You know, and we really couldn't say. I mean, we, we knew the history of tensions between China and Russia. You know, Brazil's in there, and nobody knows how it got in, except it seemed to lend the bee to the bricks. Um, and India and, and China, we knew had you know had a war. I mean, so we didn't have any understanding how this would would actually be uh, more than a construct, uh, uh, an investor's construct. And yet, I think what is there, and something that we don't understand still, is this feeling of being left out of this supposed Western liberal order. I mean, I remember going to Brazil and being lectured by the foreign minister who had been ambassador here about, you know, U.S. exceptionalism was getting in the way of real global cooperation. Um, and that, um, you know, look, 10 years, 12 years on, we don't seem to have learned, despite the fact BRICS have a development bank, they have these uh, regular summits, um, 
They also seem, you know, if you're looking at some of the voting patterns in the UN, um, they, they abstain as they did after um, uh, the Ukraine crisis. Um, you know, there is something going on, and I think it's more than, than we can't understand because we carry around in our head this, this idea on the liberal order. Um, you know, others don't feel that it's such a liberal order. Um, and I, what I worry about is that, you know, with that, that ideology, that ideological um, on both sides, that, that something that doesn't necessarily have to turn into a very strong alliance or grouping could uh, um, end up being one. But this is America's mistake to make. I mean, it, it's, it's in terms of how you're characterizing it, it's how America handles this that's, that's Well, it the key gets variable. back to, you know, this idea of do you want to be uh, first among equals? And in my mind, that's where you're best friends with everybody, in, right. in a sense. So you're like, you're um, like, and that um, you work that network um, and you derive your power from that. Um, you know, I think in a world which is broken up, and this is uh, the concern on the regional, I mean, first, I think everybody's a loser in this world. I don't think anybody comes out a winner. But I think for U.S., I mean, I think... In terms of state power, you're talking, or, or sort of... Uh, in, in terms of, I mean, we, had all, we have all these shared interests. All these, all the uh, major powers have sh huge numbers of shared interests. I mean, the, what Alexander was talking about, the counterterrorism, the proliferation, the climate change, all of these things. So if we can't cooperate, uh, we all are going to be losers in that, in that world. I totally understood. Alexander, let me ask you a slightly more philosophical question about how Russia sees the world. Um, there seems to be two sort of views of liberal order, the global liberal order unraveling. Um, one is that we'd be very happy to sign up to it if, if we were included in it properly, if we were given our true voice. Another, which is one thing, um, and that's to do with America's uh, own mistakes, unforced errors. And there's another, which is, no, we just don't believe in this anyway. Wh which is the Russian view? Well, you know, I would not again put this firewall in between uh, economic models uh, in the West and in Russia, let's say. For example, our labor uh, legislation is much more liberal than, say, in Germany. Mm -hmm. So this just black and white attitude is, is not correct in principle. Of course, we are lagging behind in development of the market institution for understandable reasons. For example, I'm completely not satisfied with the level of competition in our economy. Mm -hmm. I'm not satisfied with the role of the state-owned corporation in our mm -hmm. economy. And same true about Chinese. They're thinking for a long time, it's, let's say, politically, not uh, very easy because it's a lot of entrenched bureaucracy around Chinese uh, uh, state companies. But uh, say the thinking is how to privatize them, how to make them more, let's say, flexible, uh, more efficient. Um, 
Regarding the BRICS, one comment. Currently, I do believe that BRICS is much better institutionalized than G7, having in mind this bank and this fund and regular meeting. And mm, thinking about this Russia's pivot toward the East, of course, this rift around Ukraine has pushed Russia towards China, definitely, for sure. It was decided before, but uh, the other scenario would be unrealistic. But if you look at the current program of our development of the Far East and Eastern Siberia, it's completely liberal. The Vladivostok is port of Franca since October 1st. So no taxation, visas on spot, 14 more ports on the Far East, the same regulation. They have special um, uh, economic zones where the taxation legislation uh, is much better than in Shenzhen, Singapore, or Taiwan. So it's a very different attitude. And I have been at the first um, Eastern Economic Forum in Vladivostok and participated in interesting meeting of the governors from Russia and from China across the border. And they talk on the same language, I mean not linguistically, but in terms of organizing economic cooperation. They have blamed each other for not fulfilling this plan, this supply, and so on and so forth. So it was very impressive that governors from two different countries talking about the same. So let, let's um, <clears throat> look at another area of the world that you deal with in your report, uh, the Middle East. Um, now, there's one very plausible scenario where all the fire, firewalls can break down between, um, which is that the rest of the world continues to grow at varying speeds. There isn't any very impressive um, reform to the global institutions, but there isn't a sort of complete breakdown. But where you all face one threat increasingly in common, which is ISIS kind of terrorism, um, which is radicalism from a destabilizing Middle East, where there is a, 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 a cold or hot war between the big Sunni and the big Shia powers, and where none of you can really think of a solution or impose one on your own, including the United States, where uh, many of you, including China and, and India, increasingly rely on the region for, for their energy resources. Um, some people have mentioned the possibility of a grand concert of global powers um, coming together to fix the Middle East. Um, is that naive? Um, is, 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 uh, or is this an area where you could, actually see, you could actually see countries like India and China and Russia more and more beginning to see that they have to have more skin in the game. And they, it, it, America is either unwilling or unable to stabilize the Middle East. Everybody has to. Fyodor. I think that it's a question of uh, responsibility of major powers and especially question of responsibility of Russia and the United States. Because I do not see uh, right now or in near future any reasons for China and India to join any coalition. Maybe in a symbolic level, yes, but uh, uh, on serious, even if uh, some troubles like terrorist attack will happen in, in China or in India, they will try to use uh, their uh, potential to uh, fight terrorist uh, activity on their own territory. But I do not see them as uh, major player, uh, players on Middle East. Middle East is still the playground 
for major powers in its traditional understanding. And there, United States and Russia can play a significant role. But uh, the question is, will both states will be responsible enough to cooperate and to uh, build some uh, you know, uh, cooperative infrastructure to, 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 to which they can involve other partners? I do not see, now I have only reasons for pessimism in this sphere. I do not see any, even a very good response on both sides to French initiatives. But uh, who knows what, what will happen in uh, three or four years and how ISIS will develop. Will it transform into transnational infrastructure? In this case, if it will be not so located uh, in the area of Middle East and will work globally as a transnational infrastructure. And I, I think it's, uh, it's the worst scenario, but uh, the most uh, you know, possible one. Uh, it will be very, very hard, much more harder than now to fight against uh, ISIS and uh, uh, other transnational uh, terrorist structure which, which will follow them. Robert, do you think um, we could have a, a, <coughs> a different U.S. approach to the Middle East with the next administration? Um, one, that, one that is better able to get Russia to do whatever it is Russia needs well, to do. Well, I think there's, to... there's a problem because we, we, we don't understand the Middle East very well, and that's how you got things like Iraq. And, and when we have a situation now where you have four failing states and, and this insurgency and the whole breakdown of the Sykes-Picot Arab state system, uh, there's going to be a logic to stepping back and saying, well, maybe we ought to rethink think this. I don't see leadership in any major power able, able to do that. Uh, and I also think that what we've seen in the Middle East is there has, it has to be internally generated. The whole Arab world has failed to come to terms with modernity. And in terms of defeating ISIS, until you have neighboring Arab and Islamic countries actively discrediting their interpretation of Islam, uh, you're going to have this problem growing. And, I don't, and, and that's at the intellectual level. At the practical level, you have armies of the surrounding countries that total about 5 million men. If they put 50,000 of those on the ground, they could probably wipe out ISIS fairly quickly. And yet they're all, they've all got other preoccupations. Even though I, I wonder about, for example, <laughs> if I'm Saudi Arabia and there's an Islamic caliphate uh, that claims to represent all of Islam, don't they have to at some point control Mecca and Medina? And why aren't the Saudis worried about that? Uh, so I don't quite understand the sense of priorities, but I, I think it, there has to be a, an internally generated change. I don't think this can be t imposed completely. I think the Saudis and others have to, and Turkey have to be involved in any kind of grand coalition. Well, you need, this is a term that comes up in your report. You need a, a Kissinger, right? You need somebody who's going to sort of thread all these needles and sort of conduct the orchestra and somehow get Turkey to do this and Saudi Arabia to do that. Alexander, I know you were going to chip in. I guess that I'm starting this uh, meeting saying that both countries have very much asymmetric pictures of the reality. Well, American perception is that Russia is protecting dictator in Syria, and this is the rift. This is the... Um, is that an incorrect perception? Let me explain our perception sure. lately. Sure. So this is American perception. I will be very short. In our perception, uh, we are looking uh, in more longer distance. Let me remind you this grand plan of wider Middle East, 2001, invented by one expert in PR, not a diplomat, not a scholar, not a military expert, 
And then this grand design was the key, let's say, key, how should I say, key path of American foreign policy. What we have at the end of this wider Middle East, four foreign states, as Bob said, millions of refugees, the death toll tremendous, death bodies on the Mediterranean beach. So we look at this as a learning curve. Uh, there is no more Saddam chaos in Iraq, no more Gaddafi chaos in Libya. So our idea is not to keep the Saddam, but to keep some limited state structures there from which we could try to elaborate some past normality in this country. This is a different attitude. So we've learned, just, just to sort of press you on that, we've learned that when you remove Saddam, you don't do debathification, right? Mm -hmm. Is you keep the structure there. So when we remove Assad, we keep the structure there. Is, 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 is Assad's removal seems to be the minimum price for a global The key, key message of our foreign ministry that we are trying to protect some government institutions. Yeah. Assad is could be discussed. We have to start the political process. But your, your perception of American diplomacy here, I just, just want to press you on this. Um, if, if America was playing the game differently, if the Obama administration was playing the game differently, would we, is a deal possible where Assad is removed, but there isn't a complete dismantling and vacuum created in Damascus? Is that, is that kind of scenario? In, in my realistic? perception, I'm irresponsible scholar. It's visible. It's visible. I think the The notion that we're going to have some democratic transition in Syria, or even that a state called Syria can be reconstituted the way it was, I, and the same with, I, I would add Iraq to that equation, I think you, you might have states whose borders externally are the same, but internally, the, I think the best case I could envision in Syria would be a very, very loose federation with Assad controlling a rump Alawite section, the Kurds having a section, and the Sunnis, that, that's probably the best case, and I'm not even sure that's possible. What, sectarian co-sharing? Co, co I mean, a Lebanon-type rule, where the speaker's Shiite and the president's Maronite and the leader yeah, of whatever. Yeah, like a Lebanization, you could call it. Yeah. You could call it Lebanization. Um, but that's not a disintegration of the state. I mean, that's, that's actually a relatively optimistic scenario. Perhaps that's we're right. drilling too deep here, sorry. I, I know we've, we've got to cover the whole, we've got to cover the whole world. I want to sort of put, um, we're going to go to questions in uh, a Can few I minutes. Add, add one thing. I mean, you know, however bad the Middle East is, I mean, I could see it as being an opportunity for actually uh, you know, what happened after the end of the Thirty Years' War in Europe, a real diplomatic revolution in which, you know, we do have the outside great powers coming together as well as uh, the powers right there to think about how you, you stop um, uh, making war um, against your neighbor because of, of difference in values. Um, and that we do need, you know, those kind of opportunities, those kind of crises actually could lead us to, I think, a much higher level of global cooperation. And the problem is that we don't have that Kissinger or that Mitternich or whoever it is who can, can put together that, that um, uh, global peace. So let me um, have a couple, sneak in a couple more questions. I know there will be questions from the audience. Um, first, let, let me just put an optimistic scenario. Um, your report's pessimism about how the world might unfold 
in the next 20, 30 years is based on a, the breakdown of normal um, politics within countries, which makes the pursuit of rational foreign policy externally more and more difficult. Obviously, we've talked about Trump and politics here as being one example, but you can pick any country, including non-democracies, and, and make the same point. It's getting tougher. There is a, to cite Moises Naim's book, there is a sort of decline in traditional power in, of, of institutions. Um, uh, but on the other hand, there's this extraordinary convergence going on um, between the developing world, um, which is catching up with the developed world. Um, after 200 years, uh, 300 years of Western domination, we're having a, a convergence of global incomes. There might be growing inequality within countries, but there is growing equality mm. between them. And this is historically a major plus, a major leap forward after mm. colonialism and so forth. You also have an extraordinary flowering of, of, of science, of longevity, of um, um, medical frontiers, and of course, communications. Um, we, we've talked about the dark side of communications, and God knows ISIS is very good at exploiting that, but there is a very bright side as well. There is a Bill Gates description of the world that we're in. So it strikes me that pessimists might be slightly more institutional-minded people, might be slightly more statist, might be slightly more um, traditional in their way of thinking. But if you're a libertarian, you can construct a very plausible, optimistic case for the way the world is developing. How would you respond to this? I am, I am playing devil's advocate here. I'm kind of more with you. But uh, I, I, can see that, I can see the libertarian, I can see the libertarian argument very clearly, too. Do you have libertarians in Russia? No, we have a small amount of them. But uh, if you mean uh, the architecture of... Uh, the empowerment this, of individuals is what I'm talking about. Empowerment of uh, individuals. Yeah. I think that uh, we, we can see great changes in many developing countries and in new uh, emerging economies. Uh, uh, changes which are driven by uh, economic factors, but which are changing uh, societies, uh, which are changing political systems. For example, in China. Uh, the emergence of Chinese middle class is uh, one of the principal factor of uh, domestic consumption and growth of domestic consumption mm -hmm. and uh, of uh, transformation of uh, export-oriented uh, Chinese economy, uh, which is becoming more and more stabilized with uh, domestic consumption and other factors. But uh, on uh, the level of uh, international politics, uh, the question is, uh, to which extent these transformations during next 20 years will give opportunity uh, to uh, build a new sort of regional uh, leadership and to build more cooperative foreign policy, uh, foreign policy uh, strategies in these countries. W will they uh, develop uh, the same strategic, uh, the same type, I do not mean ideologically or politically, but the same uh, in the level of, uh, co no, no, the cognitive level on the psychological level, Will they, will they develop uh, the same strategic culture as uh, the United States and Soviet Union and then United States and Russia developed? It, it's the critical question. The critical question is psychology mm -hmm. in this sense. Mm -hmm. Robert. Um, I, I think it's, it, is, it is possible if, if 
if we managed it properly, that we can go, that you're right, that there are a lot of, uh, the diffusion of power creates uh, a shared set of common goals, in theory at least. And that, uh, Isn't there a contradiction there though? You're saying if we manage it properly, is it, the whole trend here is that it's hard to manage. It gets progressively more difficult to manage. Right. Autonomous. Well, I'm saying it, you know the U.S. has been the, the principal steward of the international system since yeah. World War II, and as it's changed, we have not stepped back and said, "Okay, this is this still works reasonably well. How do we accommodate these rising economic and political actors so that they have an interest in it?" That was that's been an assumption, I think, and now a lot of people think it's discredited of our China policy. Uh, that as they as they developed, as they build a middle class, as they became part of all the international institutions, that they would be a more normative power. And that what we're seeing is, uh, from a Chinese perspective, they have not been given the kind the kind of role that they they feel they deserve, and so they're they're pushing out in another direction. That I blame a lot of that on on uh, mistakes made by by the U.S. Some of that is Chinese ambition, but I, I, I and it's it's hard to it's hard to theorize, what, you know, or counterfactual, whether it could have been different. But but I I would I would have liked to have tried, and then we'd at least know uh, clearly that it's a question of Chinese ambition to be a great power, which a lot of us for many years had said was likely to be the case. And that this notion that they would be a responsible stakeholder, as we defined it, uh, I think was always uh, a bit fanciful. But uh, but that's 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 a, that's a problem, and I think again, no one has a better idea for how to construct and, and run an international system, but they want to have a larger voice in it, and we're not, and they're not getting that. Um, I'm going to turn it over in one second. I'm going to sneak in one last question before I do uh, to Alexander and Matt, which is uh, again a sort of um, a, a counter narrative to the one that you you're, you're both agreeing on, um, uh, namely that the U.S. power isn't declining. It's it, facility, it's, the, the, its um, skill at using its power might be um, on the wane. Um, but if you look at the BRICS, you mentioned BRICS, Matt. Uh, well, Russia's economy is going to shrink, what, 3% this year? Brazil, even more, I think. Um, India, which is the most like-minded um, and very much in the Western camp informally, if not formally, uh, in many respects, a democracy. Um, India is going to be growing at 7 or even 8% this year, next year. Um, and China is slowing too. Um, and the United States is growing, not as much as it used to, not what it's accustomed to. But could we be actually making a, a wrong and premature call here about the um, descent of America from being the sort of sole superpower to being the first amongst equals. Might we be getting our assumptions wrong, Alexander? And then Matt. Uh, well, look, of course, the China is slowing down, and the um, United States economy is on the rise. It's supposed to be 2.5, 2.6 this year. Uh, but still, with this slowdown Chinese economy, the rate of growth of this economy is twice as high than in the United States. If we look at Europe, where at best it would be 1.5, it's even higher. Of course, the Chinese economy is changing, let's say, the whole structure of the economic machine. 
They collected all low-hanging fruits, so they have to think about something more complicated. This is, of course, of course, is painful. So I guess this trend would continue, that relative decline of United States, not due to the crisis in United States, but just to the speed of the others. Mm -hmm. And Russia, of course, is not in a very good shape economically currently. But the nature of this crisis, current crisis in Russia, is completely different if we compare 1998-2009, because there was so-called V-type crisis, falling down and fast return. The crisis 2008-09, we throw away 200 billions just to prevent the banking panic. Maybe it was not a very smart move, but we saved the society in a way. Current crisis, it has sort of an L-type, so it would be longer, not as sharp, but longer. What does it mean? It means that we have to be serious about diversification. There is no other way out. Our outlook, our own outlook, our together shows that the crude oil prices would not come back to more than 100 the day after tomorrow. So that put us for the necessity of uh, changing the economic machine in Russia. And we are already moving in those directions, especially during this year. Matt? I, I think the question for the US is, do we want to be a status quo power? So we want to keep everybody in place and hold everybody down. And that was kind of what Bob was getting at with the, the China. Or do you want to actually be they're developing a new international system in which you're, you know, you're still the first, you know, first among equals has a lot of power. I mean, uh, but it does mean that you're, you're thinking about much more inclusive. Um, and I don't, you know, if you listen to the presidential debates, I think it's we want to go back to some sort of golden age. Um, and I don't think that's going to, uh, to work. I think, um, you know, despite the, the problems in Brazil or the, you know, the, the slowing growth in, in China, you are, as you talked about in an earlier question, actually into a new world. I mean, world which is actually, we have to keep it in mind that it, it's much better for everybody in the world. I mean, we're pessimistic, but if you look at all the polling of the Chinese, they're very optimistic, and the Indians are very optimistic. So, um, you know, I think, you know, whether we have the, we will have a lot of momentary, um, or the developing states will have a lot of reverses, um, but it doesn't mean that it's a long-term reverse. So I think, I think I've managed to extract two strands of optimism from this panel. One, <laughs> one is, yeah, there is a sort of, at an individual level, a, a, a growth in, in life horizons around the world, and two, is that Trump is not going to be the next president. Um, so I'm feeling, I'm feeling chipper, much more chipper than when I began. Uh, yes, a question, sir. That's the first hand, the yellow tie, and, and then a lady, and then Harlan. Um, Randall Fort with Raytheon. Um, Mr. Luce, I'd like to follow up on one of your um, most recent points, which is the empowerment of individuals. But in fact, it's super empowerment of individuals. This device um, will be in your frame will be between one billion and one trillion times better, more, faster, cheaper. 
whatever, but that's the Moore's Law progression. So, and this, which is a few hundred dollars, will be in the hands of today, 40% of the pop global population is hooked up as compared with less than 1%, even um, uh, less than 20 years ago, and as that grows. So, Matt, you're the head of the Strategic Foresight. I just wonder, as you did your report, did you look far enough ahead at these trends for maybe a fourth option, which, with all due respect to Russia, as Feshbeck points out, you're a dying state demographically, your, your economy is on the ropes, and there's no chance that a uh, commodity-based economy is going to compete in the 21st century. Um, individuals will be increasingly empowered. Um, there will be centrifugal forces that will, that will challenge any central government anywhere. Information will be available, even the best efforts of the KGB and the FSB to keep information out of the hands of Russian citizens will fail. Um, in China too, good luck with a great firewall of China. Um, so I just wonder, is there a fourth alternative here that is positive, that individuals will increasingly have an influence on these things, that there will be crowdsourcing of foreign policy, if you will, and that that may have a very different outcome than this concert of powers sitting around with Metternich kind of imposing solutions that the states are going to be contending with increasingly intelligent, increasingly empowered individuals who will be making decisions. Crowdsourcing of foreign policy, Matt. <laughs> I, I somehow, I, I guess, you know, maybe I, I, I can't make that leap um, to see that as, as actually happening. And, you know, what we have seen with a lot of the crowdsourcing is it's really this, the crowd that shares the same view getting together. You know, not necessarily expanding their their point of view and perspective, but narrowing it. Um, and that's what you know. I would hope that at some time you would you would have the other impulse where you could have a much broadening. But I I I think in many ways the technologies have have narrowed our perspective and increased our you know our prejudices. Um, I think you're going to have to see something that, that is more of a dynamic between the individual and government. And I think government has been the slow one on really tapping into. And there's a lot that government can do in terms of crowdsourcing or using those technologies. Um, but I do think it, you're still, leadership is a very critical uh, question. and. Um, really, government and this broader super empowered uh, um, citizenry have to be working much more, and government has to find a way of, of, of working with them. Fiero. Uh, I would like to add uh, some words about empowerment of individuals in such countries as Russia and China. I think that we see great changes in this sphere serious shifts and please believe me next generation which is uh, now emerging and coming into uh, different spheres of economy and politics into power is uh, driving a new force into the empowerment of uh, individuals on uh, a social political level we see revolution in social media all social media are allowed in russia if we compare it to china where facebook twitter google are prohibited and blocked in Russia, we use all of them. 
we have plenty of information. Several governors and majors of Russian cities uh, had to, uh, to retire because of uh, uh, mass criticism in uh, social media. We usually have campaigns against ministers. Now we have a we have, uh, big campaign about corruption uh, in uh, different spheres of uh, Russian politics. But I would like to also mention that you are absolutely wrong about demography of Russia. <laughs> During the last five years, we have positive demographic trends and positive dynamics. It doesn't mean that, the, uh, that together with economy, uh, it, 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 it would not uh, get lower and uh, dynamics uh, of uh, demography will be as positive as they used to, used to be during, uh, you know, fat years. Uh, but uh, things are, uh, are positive now. How they will look on global trends, it will depend not only on uh, the, uh, the state of Russian economy, but also of readiness of our partners to uh, give Russia opportunities to become included member of international economy. Interesting. And the, the lady <coughs> behind um, the gentleman who just asked the question. My name is Marcy Rees. I just returned from being ambassador to Bulgaria, and I'm currently working as an international consultant. I was struck by the fact that um, not much discussion has happened about energy. Previously, when we had any sort of geopolitical discussion, oil played a very important role in that discussion. And we know with the you mentioned the decline of the price of oil as a factor. But um, what about different sources of energy, focus on gas, fracking, uh, changes in, in approach on climate, that driven by climate change? How do those play into the geopolitical trends that you've been discussing? Excellent question, thank you. Um, who'd like to pick up? Well, yeah, well we, we, in, in the full report, we have a whole, a whole section on energy. Uh, I think that the, the shale revolution is probably one of the and the first, the most transformative technologies commercialized so far this century. And it's completely changed global oil markets. And I think where we are now, I think I agree with the school of thought that says we're approaching peak demand. That we now, there's a reason we have $40 oil. There's a glut, and Iran hasn't even come onto the market yet. And I think we're, we're at the very beginning of a transition to a post-petroleum economy. It, I don't think it'll be completed by 2035, but by mid-century, I think it will be. And a lot of it depends on the commercialization of new technologies. If we get cost-effective uh, energy storage capabilities, you're going to see a, a huge boom in uh, renewables. If we don't, I think they're going to continue to be limited as they are, I think we're seeing an enormous uh, role of gas as a transition technology. And I think, you know, it's the end of OPEC. I, I don't think people have sort of gotten their arms around the, the shift in the geopolitics of energy yet. Uh, but, you know, all the Middle East oils go into China, East Asia, India. And I think that's, and yet, who, who's the guardian of? stability in the Middle East, it's, it's us. And I don't think anybody's thought that through. Uh, it's certainly at least, I'm not saying the Middle, Middle East isn't important, but it's certainly an argument for burden sharing, uh, it seems to me. And so, so uh, yes, I think energy is an important factor, but I think 
op in the opposite of the way it used to be. People used to speculate about we're running out, running out of oil. Now it's quite clear that there's plenty of oil. It's just a factor of technology that determines how much. And uh, I think the future of, of oil and gas will, as I say, depend on uh, whether we make investment in smart grids, whether we have breakthroughs in energy technology, and there's, there's an awful lot of, uh, DOE alone is funding 21 different efforts to create more efficient energy storage. So it's all out there, and we, you can't predict the time scale, but I, I don't think energy is the kind of factor it used to be in, in, in the equation. Thank you. Alexander, just I mean, out of interest, what you were talking about the, the need to diversify the Russian economy. From, reasons the questioner outlined. Um, uh, what, what is, what is um, President Putin's stance in Paris? What is the Russian perspective on global climate change? I probably should know this, but I don't. Well, we are, let's say, going in line with the majority of the countries. We are for uh, taxation of the green gas emission. You, and you have, a, you have a plan that targets specific reductions in Russian emissions over well, a specific time horizon? Sorry, I'm not informed. I guess we have some of that. OK, all right. Harlan, and then the gentleman. Yeah, sorry, wait for the mic. <clears throat> and I want to congratulate you and the panel for a very, very scintillating discussion that was well done. Uh, my question is really for our Russian colleagues. Uh, let me permit me an observation um, first. If one really wanted to be pessimistic two years ago, who would have thought that Trump uh, Carson and Cruz would be serious candidates for the Republican uh, nomination. But when we think about the future and being pessimistic, I just ask that you think about history, think about the period from the 1890s to 1914, the 1930s, 1946, 47, 48, 49, 50, the early 60s. And those were time for real pessimistic uh, assessments, and I don't think that we're nearly close to those points. My question is this. I agree with Alexander's assessment of Russian interest in Syria and one of the reasons why we're there, which is not, certainly not shared by President Obama, who wants Assad to go. Um, I don't think the issue is a new Kissinger. The issue is who's a new Nixon, because without Nixon, there would have been no Kissinger. From Putin's perspective, I think he doesn't have a great deal of respect for President Obama, and I'm sure that's returned. But who would Putin listen to? If somebody came to a message, if somebody were going to be the new Nixon, who might that be? And how do we get some kind of a meeting of the minds between Putin and other leaders? Because quite frankly, common interest in the Middle East should overcome our conflicting interest. But quite frankly, as Bob Manning points out, too many people in this country are delusional. So unless there's some kind of breakthrough, it's pretty obvious where the Middle East is going to go through. So who would Putin listen to? Who would be the intermediary if such a person exists? So Russia needs an American leader with which we can do business. Um, who, would that, who would that be, Alexander? Good question. Not necessarily an American. Oh, OK. Well, you know, it's a tough question. Um, the Putin is changing. And say, during his first term, he was eager to listen. He chat with Tony Blair. He had excellent relation with the Bush Jr. But they could not keep in line this type of relation. At a certain point, each of them broke those relations. I know that he pay respect to Henry Kissinger. But Obama do not pay the same respect to Henry Kissinger here currently, unfortunately. <laughs> 
So to answer your question, I would say the best way would be if we could reestablish G8 as a communication platform. That would help. But I guess there is no one person who would influence Putin. He believes in himself and he finds himself very much experienced currently. Fira. One word. Sure, sure. Uh, I think that uh, if we look attentively to the history, uh, uh, Soviet Union and then Russia um, had a very positive experience of interacting with Republicans in the sphere of arms control. But I'm not sure that Republicans now are ready to, to keep on this dialogue, are more ready than Democrats. And I think that in any scenario, it could be one question of, uh, of uh, the most significant for our agenda. To which extent we will be ready to keep dialogue on arms control reductions and uh, uh, arms control regime on such issues as non-proliferation, international terrorism. I can add that even in Syria, we have very positive dialogue for, uh, military to mili on level military to military and uh, between our security forces and exchange of information. But on political level, it's, it's a deficit of normal dialogue and it's, it's the critical question. Gentlemen there. Sorry, this, yeah. My name is Anthony Odi. I spent 30 years at the World Bank, including eight years on the China country desk. And I wanted to pick up on the question whether we can expect the Chinese to be responsible global citizens to put to the panel suggestion that they will probably go being selectively responsible and selectively global. Case for the prosecution, behavior in the South China Sea, which looks very aggressive to me. Case for the fence, it seems they are engaging quite constructively on the global climate uh, discussions. <coughs> Shared with the panel, the Chinese are quite smart enough to keep out of the Middle East. Why on earth would you want to add to your problems by getting in there? On the other hand, the, the Asian Infrastructure Bank, which some in Washington see as an aggressive move, seems to be very constructive indeed. If you look at who they've nominated as the president, if you look at the consultative manner, they've drafted the Articles of Agreement, um, and the fact that existing institutions, including Bretton Woods, cannot come close to meeting the needs for infrastructure investment. Matt. I would agree with your assessment, and I think, you know, we have to look back in our own history. I mean, U.S. became a global power, kind of was launched into being global power after the Second World War. But before that, we were also rather selective in what we, we actually focused on. And I think, you know, China especially is aware of um, overreach. And, get, you know, I've gone a number of trips because we've done similar um, joint exercises with them, and they keep repeating in terms of the Middle East. Well, the Middle East is the graveyard of empires, and we're not going to get stuck in it. Uh, and of course, they're very polite and not saying you are, but um, <laughs> they are very conscious of getting overstretched. I do think that uh, you're right, and we talk about this in the report a lot. I, I actually think this uh, one road, one belt is a very, one thing, very innovative, creative kind of solution, dealing with their vulnerabilities, turning them into strengths, as, as Ed 
alluded to at the beginning with the borders with 14 states and also the fact that they want to they have excess capacity on all the things that you need for infrastructure building at the moment and obviously those areas are really need the infrastructure so I think they've been very canny and now with support of Russia you don't have that competition as much um, that you know they they see that as an area where also they're not going to get in as much trouble with the US um, South China Sea obviously is one where they are I think potentially um, I, I think over time you could see China obviously graduate into being much more of the global citizen having much more of the global interests but that is a long-term um, possibility I think I'm, I'm <coughs> more struck by how how much they have taken on that role despite what are obviously their own worries about overstretch if you look at what you know their um, outreach to Africa their outreach to Latin America I mean they're now trying to play more of a political role not simply the economic um, one that obviously they they have and is shrinking uh, in those areas so I would, I'm relatively optimistic on, on that side. Alexander. A uh, couple of sentences. Uh, you know, we're facing clear the Chinese pivot towards the West. It's clear for me. One member of our staff recently participated in the conference regarding one belt, one road in Madrid, mm -hmm. the final point. Uh, but, uh, you know, I agree with Matt that if we add infrastructure to Eurasia, we have their cheap labor, mineral resources, and I guess in 10 years, 15 years, it could be the region of very fast growth. And I do, Chinese is doing very smart with those ideas. And we, of course, support it, and we try to develop together the structure of this project. And this investment bank it's not separated from the global financial system. The whole internal procedure are borrowing from EBRD. Yeah, that's a, a good point, um, sir. The, and then, uh, Anders Åslund, the Atlantic Council. Thank you very much for an excellent, uh, very interesting discussion. I wanted to follow up on uh, uh, energy and diversification that uh, primarily Alexander has uh, talked about. We are now facing probably one or two decades of low energy prices because of the long energy uh, cycles. And uh, the argument has often been made that this would be good for Russia. This is the way to diversification. Oil and gas used to be two-thirds of Russia's exports. This, uh, it will be about half. But this also means a different international interaction for Russia. Russia's salaries are two, three times higher than the, the Chinese still, and uh, therefore Russia is not competitive in manufacturers. Russia has a lot of high-tech skills that China does not have to the same extent. It would be more uh, natural then, with less energy dependence, to be interacting more with Europe rather than China, for which uh, Russia is primarily uh, raw material uh, uh, exporter. How do you look upon this in the longer term, Alexander? Thank you. Uh, 
look for the next three years, the options for Russian Sukhoi Superjet is something like 60, 80 machines a year. Next year, there would be test flight of wide-body jet M21, which is in direct competition with the Airbus. Uh, we are currently accomplishing the design and testing production of the new turboprop engine, which is in big demand in China. They still could not pr produce the modern turboprop engine. Uh, the line of superconductivity transmission operated for the length of 250 meters, and we are thinking about longer line. So I could mention, it's you know very initial science, but five years ago, I couldn't mention anything of this now. Um, we've got time, I think, for one maximum, two more, more questions. Do you, I, I'm, I'm conscious we're pretty male-dominated up on this floor, and we've heard, are there any women with questions? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's rather late in the day to be token, isn't it? Uh, yes, the gentleman at the back. Uh, very good, uh, interesting uh, topic. Uh, at the beginning, the moderator uh, uh, mentioned the three scenarios, and uh, it seems the, the, the most uh, pessimistic is the third scenario, the uh, inclusive uh, international order. So in order to, to, to realize the, the third scenario, that means uh, the new normal to, to build into an inclusive uh, new international order, as uh, uh, the U.S. as uh, 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 first among uh, other powers has a uh, uh, particular role to play. So what kind of uh, strategy do you think uh, U.S. should do in order to realize the, uh, the, the inclusive order? And do you think uh, the next uh, administration will be able to do that? Um. Any, any panelists, but Matt, I mean, you're, or Matt or Bob should answer on, in terms of what America, well, actually, no, I'd, I'd be interested to hear the Russian perspective on that. Yeah, what why should don't we America have the do? Russians? Okay. <laughs> They're Fearful. probably more optimistic. Right. I can uh, suggest one example. I think that uh, right now uh, the question is uh, how uh, the international system will develop is uh, very interconnected with the question how a system of international trade and investment uh, will develop. And uh, in case uh, the United States will build their big uh, global uh, trade initiatives uh, in Euro-Atlantic and in Asia-Pacific as an inclusive initiatives or not, because I know that China is very concerned how uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership will influence on their trilateral uh, uh, trade uh, free zone, uh, free, free trade zone with uh, Japan and South Korea. Uh, Russia is very concerned how uh, transatlantic trade and investment partnership will influence on the development of the Eurasian Union and will it be ready to, uh, to build connections and to which extent with the Eurasian Union. It, it, it's not the question of uh, economic matters and financial matters. It's also the question of politics and security. Bob. Uh, yeah, I <coughs> I think the starting point is there's not going to be another WTO global round. We saw that with the failure of the last one, uh, precisely because of this diffusion of power. Uh, I think TPP, I, I, 
there's been a, a dramatic shift in Chinese views of DPP over the last year, year and a half. Two years ago, the, the Chinese thinking was, how do we kill it? And now they're thinking, how do we join it? And when I go to China and talk to the people in the economic and financial establishment, they all kind of agree with me that sooner or later, China will probably uh, accede to TPP when it is prepared to operate on those standards. I think the US has an opportunity between TPP and TTIP to uh, create something that's close to the WTO in terms of global standards. And Russia is a member of the WTO, and there's no reason that it couldn't start talking about joining TTIP if it ever became a reality, which we're some distance from that now. Uh, it's a question of uh, what standards you operate under. And I, and I think there's no reason why China can't join TPP. I, I think we're five, ten years away from that, but uh, similarly for Russia. So I think it, it's not a question of inclusion or exclusion. It's a question of, of standards. And it's unfortunate that Obama has had to sell TPP here as some kind of anti-China effort because it, it is not in, in the sense that it is in the sense that it's a question of what role the U.S. and China play in terms of shaping the rules of world trade. And it's not a question of either or, either China writes them or we do, which is the way it's been sold to Congress. And, and that's unfortunate, but that's American politics. Uh, we have time for one final um, brief humdinger of a question, hopefully, sir. You uh, I think it's a humdinger, but unfortunately, uh, it's also uh, probably more pessimistic than anything the uh, panelists have so far said. I have a very different perspective on the energy issue. Uh, global oil production by conventional means peaked in 2005. Um, since then, we've been increasingly dependent on non-conventional means, uh, fracturing the earth, squeezing tar from sands, etc. The, these means are more expensive. Uh, that sounds uh, uh, counterintuitive in light of the low price of oil, but a more insightful way to look at this is in terms of uh, energy return for energy invested. In other words, you invest the equivalent of a barrel of oil. How many barrels do you get back? Uh, with non-conventional means, it's four or five barrels versus the old days uh, conventional means when you might get 100 barrels back. That means a decline in living standards. Uh, might that not explain the slowness of the global economy in recovery from the economic crisis, which manifested itself in 2008. And if this trend is going to continue and we're going to see a uh, decline in global living standards, might not that trend be more important than the question of relations between the great powers? The future of work and middle-class incomes. Well, I mean, certainly we've seen you know, stagnant and in some places decline in middle class um, incomes already. I mean, that goes back a couple of decades. And, I, you know, as I said at the very beginning, I, I think these domestic issues are actually of, of great importance for uh, international politics. And I think, you know, partly where we are in U.S. politics and certainly also, I think, in, in Europe, um, the fact you have a lot more populism, a lot more rejectionist uh, politics, I think it can all be traced back to, to the fact that you do have people who feel that they have been losers in this globalization uh, process. And certainly, if you look at the, the World, pa World Bank stats on this, they have been. That particular segment, the middle middle class, really has been a loser. 
in the past couple of decades. If we don't reverse that, I think we descend into uh, you know the the kind of more of the kind of politics we already have. The real worry, and I don't want to make this too pessimistic because we're at the final, um, but the real worry is on the technologies. Is as you not so much energy, but as you get into the emerging technologies, robotics and automation, um, that you could deepen those inequalities uh, and the the plight of the of the middle class. Uh, but you know, I think we should, you know, going back maybe to for earlier question, I mean, you know, we we can't predict leadership uh, very well. So if you pick up Harlan's um, mention of Nixon, I think you know when he was elected, it wasn't clear. Or Reagan, you know, we can remember the evil empire statements. It wasn't necessarily clear um, when they were elected um, actually what would happen in terms of particularly U.S. Soviet or U.S.-Russia relations. Um, I think you know there may be somebody out there that we don't completely understand who could actually um, turn things around. So. Well, I think you know you're amongst realists when we're all praying for a Nixon. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I don't know whether I'm more um, um, pessimistic or optimistic, but I certainly feel more educated at the end of that and um, uh, really enjoyed hearing from all of you. Thank you very much indeed. Yeah, yeah.